if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We began looking at these verses last week. You can see that your notes are the same notes from last week. We're going to pick up on uh, point two uh, in your notes this week. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached to even those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As we look once again to what Peter's been telling this group of suffering Christians whose world is crumbling around them and they're fearful and they're on the run, Jesus has just laid out the Gospel for them. He has laid out Christ's suffering that ended in resurrection in victory and conquering death and conquering Satan and his demons. And in light of that fact, he says we ought to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. This text calls us to think like Christ thought, to live like Christ lived. To live for the will of God and not for the passions of the flesh. And to illustrate what it might be like to live according to the passions of the flesh, I want to tell you uh, a story about a hunt that I had last year. Uh, usually for four or five days, uh, a couple of my really good friends from Minnesota will come up and for four days we will hunt during the whitetail rut. It's the best time to hunt deer because as you know, deer are really skittish, especially really big bucks. Because if they got big, they got old. And they know how to avoid uh, humans. They know how to stay safe. They know to move only at night. But during the rut, their instinct that 
God put in them is so strong, it causes them to act in ways that they would never otherwise do for the other 11 months out of the year. So here we are, we're at Laura's grandparents' farm. We're, I'm sitting in a tree belt in the same tree with Ryan, one of my good friends, and what we do is we videotape each other. So one of them's hunting, one's videoing. And we're sitting there, and he's hunting. And about 200 yards away, there's another tree belt that runs parallel to the belt we're in. And all of a sudden, we see a buck cruising. Now, what's that mean? That means his nose is to the ground, and he's walking at a fast pace, and he's trying to pick up a hot doe, a doe that's in heat. He's trying to find one. He doesn't have one. And so, as hunters, we seek to take advantage of the instinct of the buck. So, what I did is I pulled this out. And I made this sound. And what the buck did is popped its head up. Because what that sounds like is that sounds like a buck following a doe. And that buck doesn't have a doe. So as he pops his head up, he looks our direction. Give another one. And he starts to come. And the buck comes into 30 yards. Ryan makes a perfect shot. And the deer runs 100 yards, bleeding out of both sides, and dies. And the next morning, I'm hunting in the same tree. And he's videoing. And in the same tree belt 200 yards away, the same scenario plays out, and that buck comes in, and I shoot it, and it went 40 yards, and in following the blood trail, six feet up into the corn, there was blood. You say, now, why do we need to know those details? Why did those deer die? If you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, I want to show you what Peter says about false teachers and about living according to our passions. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even the denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Now that word is in our text in First Peter. That's how the Gentiles live. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And there 
in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Peter says these false teachers, destruction's coming. And then look at verse 9 of 2 Peter 2. He just gave the illustration of how Lot, Lot was saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. That's the angels. These false teachers are talking about the angels as though they're more powerful than they are. And then he says, whereas the angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord, but these, and these are these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters to, of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for wrongdoing. They, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. And then in verse 18, he says, for speaking loud boasts and follies, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so these false teachers who are driven by their passions and their lusts, he says they're like animals, creatures of instinct that are born to be caught and destroyed. That's how you trap an animal. That's how a hunter kills an animal. You understand the instincts. You understand they're enslaved to their instincts. And you use that against them to their own destruction. These false teachers say, oh yeah, go ahead, indulge your flesh. They know how to sell you what you want to hear. But they don't know the end of the narrative. They don't know it ends in death. They don't know that these passions are really slavery. Think of a teenager who goes off to college maybe and has a newfound freedom, which actually isn't freedom if they use their freedom to indulge the flesh because that indulging of the flesh is actually slavery that leads to death. There is no freedom in guilt. There is no freedom with the guilty conscience. There is no freedom with 
indulging the flesh. And that's what Peter is saying in this text. He says, don't give away your humanity. Don't become like animals. You aren't merely animals enslaved to your next urge. That's not who you are. That's not who Christ was. And so we looked at what he says in verse 1 of back in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He just laid out the narrative of Christ's life and he says, you need to know that narrative and you need to think how Christ thought. And Christ told us how to think. He told us that if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a daily death in following Jesus. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's a narrative, isn't it? For for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. See, Jesus is laying out a narrative to life. He's saying, in this world, if you follow me, this world will reject you, they'll mock you. But if you're going to be ashamed of me, there's an end to the story. I'll be ashamed of you when I come. There's an end to the story. And we don't know how to live in the present if we don't know the end. We don't know how to take on the ridicule of the world if we're not clearly seeing the result of the gospel. And so we talked about how important it was to think like Jesus thought. And Jesus thought much different than the way humans think. One of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 14, beginning in verse 11, says this, and just listen carefully. See if you can pick up on it. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. See the point? Which one's going to be destroyed first? The tent or the house? In worldly thinking, it's the tent. It's not the way we think. And so the very next verse says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the path of death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and at the end of joy may be grief. Every party where there's drunkenness, sexual immorality, there's a lot of laughing going on. 
But the scripture tells us that even in the midst of that laughing, there's a sad soul. There's grief. There's death in the midst of living in these passions. And then verse 14 says, the the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And so we talked about, we were to think like Jesus thought, and he thought much different than the way we think. He was willing to suffer in the flesh because he knew that victory was coming. That is contrary to what will come natural to your flesh. And that's why Jesus said, to follow me is to die daily. (laughs) There's a battle when you wake up in the morning to indulge your flesh. And so the reason he gives for arming ourselves with the same way of thinking and to be committed to suffering in the flesh because that's how sin is conquered. See, if you're willing to suffer physically, sin loses its power in your life because sin promises you don't have to suffer. You can feel good right now. You can make it good for you now. There's no delayed delayed satisfaction in the flesh. It's, I want to satisfy things right now. But verse 2 says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you realize the purpose of your salvation is not merely just to get you to heaven someday? But it's to so that you would live differently from the time you're saved until Christ returns? That's what this text is saying. That's the purpose. That's what it means in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. That's your time on earth. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What are these human passions? 1 John 2.15 gives us an insight into this where John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The point John's making is, is is know what's from God and know what isn't from God. This lust of the flesh, I have to satisfy my every urge, is not from God. We can fool ourselves and say, well, this is the way God made me. He wants me to satisfy these urges. Plus, I've had a hard day. Plus, my marriage is struggling. So, What's the big deal if I don't, if I lust in my mind? You see, that's, that's what we can do. What's the big deal? I had a hard day. I know I'm eating more. I, I'm entering a sin pattern in eating. 
and committing the sin of gluttony, but we justify it. But what we're to hear is, this isn't from the Father. It's not from the Father. And the lust of the eyes, coveting what we don't have, that doesn't come from God. And the pride of life, wanting everyone to think good of us and and be accepted into the group, that doesn't come from God. But we might say, well, everyone wants a friend. I've been, you know, young people, you might think I'm lonely at home. Other people are out having a party right now. This following Christ business is miserable. You might, you might begin to run that narrative. But then John says, all that stuff in the flesh is passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The person gets eternal life in the fall. So, in order to not live according to the flesh, but to live according to the will of God, you have to know what's from the Father, and you have to know what's from the flesh. You have to be able to discern it. James says it this way, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, now get this, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own lust, his own longings, and desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. It's another narrative, isn't it? And we're told that God never tempts you. You're tempted when you have disordered desires. And in James 4, my, one of my favorite biblical counseling texts for marriage, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Husband and wife point at each other. She does. He does. And then they run their narrative. And guess what? They're both right. You want to know why? They both married sinners. So it's really easy to get your narrative against your spouse. Really easy. Because it's all it's usually true. Yeah, you're probably as big a dog as your wife says, and yeah, you're probably as miserable a wife as your husband says. That doesn't surprise me. It's easy to fight. But what does the Bible say for why we fight? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Look at what it says. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight. You fight, or so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You see that? So these passions of the flesh are the way we used to live. I love how he says it. He says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does he mean for the will of God? How do we know what the will of God is? 
Remember, sometimes it's helpful. Who's writing this letter? Peter's writing this letter. Peter's life experience matters here. And Peter's helping other Christians in the midst of suffering. Let me just remind you of a story in Peter's life. John 21, 17. This is after Peter has denied Christ. And now he's with the resurrected Christ. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let me just ask a question. At this point, does Peter know what the will of God is for his life? Jesus has spoken a clear command, right? Feed my sheep. Clearly. Do you love me? Okay. Feed my sheep. That's clear. Peter can know something of the will of God crystal clear from the words of Christ. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show him what kind of death he was going to glorify God. It's going to be a type of death where he stretches out his hands. Someone else will dress him and carry him where he doesn't want to go. Jesus said, Peter, here's your will. Here's my will for your life. Feed my sheep. And here's how it's going to end on this earth. You're not going to get what you want. You're going to go to where you don't want to go. History has it that Peter was crucified upside down. And that same Peter, well, first I want to show you how Peter responds because he responds how you and I would. And then I'll get to that point. So he shows them how he's going to die. This he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Isn't that interesting? What you would expect is, this he showed Peter to show him what kind of death he's going to die. But that's not what it says. He told him this to show him what kind of death he's going to glorify God. So Peter, you're going to feed my sheep and then you're going to glorify me in the way you die. And Peter does what you and I would do Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. You see what Peter tried to do instantly? Jesus had told him his will for his life and instantly Peter wanted to compare it for God's will for someone else's life. He says, what is it to you, Peter, what my will is for John's life? You feed my sheep. 
You're going to die a death you don't want to die. Follow me. So Peter is not your typical therapist that is trying to comfort people in suffering with some sort of cushy, cushy, make you feel better ideas. Peter is saying this knowing that in his life, it's going to cost him. (laughs) His life on this earth is not going to be defined by, boy, at the end of Peter's life, he really got to just indulge all of his passions of his flesh. God has told us his will for our lives. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think how you got to think differently. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, if you listen to Jesus and you know his words, then you're able to discern in the moment, this is from the world that's passing away, and this is from my Father. You see, we got to be transform our thinking if we're going to be able to test and know what's from God and what's from our flesh. His will is knowable. Proverbs 4.18 says this, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The righteous person knows the story. He knows the path. He knows what paths not to take. The young man who listens to his father in Proverbs 4 sees the narrative and in this world he can understand it. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. But for Christians, we're not to conform ourselves to the world. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We're to know the narrative. We're to know that we're not to indulge the flesh, but we're to live for the will of God. And that's a good thing. 1 Thessalonians 4. I, I, want, I want to show you this. We're still thinking about how can we know the will of God? It, we like to talk about this like it's some subjective way of life. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, so we clearly showed you how to walk and how to please God. It's a knowable will. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. So now lean in. If you're about falling asleep, wake up. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. God's will is not only to save you, 
to take away the punishment for your sins for when you face God one day, but also that you live differently until Christ comes, that you live a new life. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Notice he doesn't say that each one of you control his own body. He says that each one of you knows how to control his own body. And that's what Peter's been telling him. You need to think the way Jesus thought if you're going to control your body. If you're an alcoholic and you can't stop the urge of drinking, if that's so strong in your flesh, if you're addicted to pornography, if you're addicted to food, if you're addicted to Facebook, if you're addicted to the praise of man, do you know how to win that battle? That's the point of the sermon. That's what Peter wants them to know. That's what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know. How to have control of your body. Because before we're saved, we're enslaved to these passions. We have no choice. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. They don't know the narrative. They don't know how to get out of the slavery. They're on the path of deep darkness. They're stumbling and they don't know what to stumble. they're stumbling over. And then he says that no one of you transgress or wrong his bro- brother in this ma- matter. The issue is sexual immorality. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. His purpose for your life is not to say, all your sins are forgiven, so don't feel guilty now as you fill yourself with the passions of the flesh. No, He's got something much better for you. You can deny the passions of the flesh and have a clear conscience before God because of Christ. You can repent of your sin and you can have the benefit of this close relationship. In the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. And so Paul tells young Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Who are you with? Who are you with? Are you fleeing youthful passions? Are you surrounding yourselves with those who are on the same, have the same battle they're fighting? They're pursuing righteousness and holiness and desiring to live for God. And by the way, adults, even if you don't think you have a great social life, whatever you invite to put into your mind with media is who you're going along with. The majority of what you listen to and what you're thinking about, the the people who are putting thoughts into your mind, what are they living for? 
You don't want to spend the majority of your time surrounding yourselves with people who are on a path where they don't know the narrative. They're stumbling and falling and they don't know why. 2 Timothy 4.3, I love this. Paul tells Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then in verse 5 is the key. As for you, always be sober-minded. Be careful how you think. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You see that? Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work God's called you to do. That's what he told Timothy. So, we're clearly called to not only think as Christ thought, but to live like he lived, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the Christian life is waking up in the morning saying, who am I? And in light of who I am, what's my purpose? I want, I want, I want, I want, I want all these things, but I'm not my own. I'm bought at a price. I'm his. What does he want from me? And that's not bad news. God has not called us to the lesser life because death is at the end of following passions. And then he says in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices. I love that. For doing what the Gentiles want to do. You played that out long enough. You've done that long enough. People are so blind in their sin because it's not, it's not like covert. When you get drunk at night, you feel like garbage in the morning. It's no mystery. When you sleep around and get sexually transmitted diseases, there, there, there's instant, in, in a sense, built into God's world, in His kindness, we see this isn't good. We, you know, we overeat and we become unhealthy and we see the negative effects of following our flesh. It's self-evident there. He's saying you've done that long enough. It doesn't produce joy. It doesn't produce happiness. It produces guilt and it separates you from God. And as Christians, when we sin, it's not that we're separated from God uh, judicially. It's not like all of a sudden now our sins aren't forgiven. But you are separated from God when you sin and don't repent relationally. The closeness, the, the goodness of waking up with a clear conscience, knowing I'm repenting of any known sin and I'm seeking God and I'm fighting sin. And I have this fellowship with Him and I got this clear narrative about what's true for me is in front of me. So he says, you spend enough time doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. 
when you look at this word, Elsega, it means behavior completely lacking moral restraint, usually with the implication of sexual licentiousness. Do you think we live in an age that says do whatever you want with your sexuality? Sensuality, you can even hear the word sense in there. It's the way of just living according to your flesh. And then passions, epithemia. The word could be translated lust, to strongly desire to have what belongs to someone else or to engage in activity which is morally wrong, to covet, to lust, evil desires, drunkenness, to consume a large quantity of alcohol, to so like the feeling that you can't stop. You got to take more and more and more. Orgies, this idea of, uh, this word has the idea of carousing and revelry in the midst of drunkenness. The world really hasn't changed that much, is it? has it? Romans 13.13 13 says, Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's the battle. How does Christ think? What did Christ do? He denied. It didn't feel good to get nails pounded into his hands. It didn't feel good to bear the wrath of God on the cross. But he was not enslaved to his passions. This doesn't mean you never enjoy eating or you never enjoy a gift of God. The difference is is it doesn't have slavery over your life. You can receive it in its proper form and have thanksgiving to God for it. And then he ends this list with lawless idolatry. Which brings the idea of worship. Did you know at a drinking party where there's sexual immorality going on, there's drunkenness going on? Did you know worship is happening? Did you know this is an act of worship? The one being worshipped is the one fulfilling their passions? And the God is whatever thing or person that gives you that? You can worship the bottle. You can worship your girlfriend. You can worship your boyfriend. You can worship this forgetfulness about life and losing control. It's a a way to say, God, I'm not going to be comforted by you in my pain. I'm going to go to something else. And let me just tell you, though the world tells you drinking parties, sensuality is normal, it's not. It's not normal. It's from human passion and it ends in destruction. And then in verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in this same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You know, Ella is 14 years old. And one of the things 
I tell her often as I talk to her about how the world will respond to her. It's a tough road to not have all the friends and fit in. It's a tough road to walk when people mock you and malign you and you don't go with the crowd. But you got to know the narrative. It's the road Christ walked. It ended in victory. It's the road Peter walked. It ended in victory for him. And he wants them to know the end of the story. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That party that's going on and that life that maybe looks so free with freedom ends in destruction. It's actually slavery. He wants them to know that. For this is why the gospel was preached to even to those who are dead. That doesn't mean you preach to a dead body laying there. What he's saying to the Thessalonians is he's saying that some of the Christians have died in the flesh already. And the gospel was preached to them, but they never lost. They never lost. Because they thought when Christians died, did we miss the second coming? Because Christians shouldn't die. But look at what he says. He says, for this is why the gospel to preach to, to even those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh the way people are, they died like everyone dies, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so, we ought to be reminded, my goal for the sermon, rem remember this stupid grunt call. In the illustration self-destructs, if you don't remember the text, it goes with. When that deer heard this, it followed the path that leads to destruction. And I'm telling you, this world's grunting. This world's calling. The commercials, the social media, it's all designed to play off your sinful instincts that you're enslaved to. But we as Christians do not need to be enslaved to that. Not only does Christ pay the price for our sins, but he also gives us power to begin to kill the sin and the slavery that had us bound up. So my prayer is, is that you'll leave today and you'll ask yourself, you'll take inventory of your life, and you'll say, what areas of my life am I enslaved to that is causing me to knowingly do sinful things? Know how to control your body. You do it by preaching the gospel to yourself, telling yourself the narrative. And then the Holy Spirit, as you look at God's word, will give you power in the present to begin to be cut free from them strongholds that hold us.
And we'll look at verse 7 next week because we're going to look at how prayer is involved here. Father, we thank you that you're not a God who just says, just trust me. You're good. You don't just throw us into suffering and say, just trust me. But you're a God who tells us how life works. Yes, you've called us to suffer. Yes, you've called us to deny our selfishness and to live for ourselves. These defiling passions are all for us. You've called us to glorify you and love others. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us. That we would see the kindness that you share the whole narrative with us. You tell us the future. The rest of the world doesn't know. Lord, I pray that we would shine as lights in the midst of this crooked generation because we have hope even in the midst of suffering. Even when people mock us, there can be a peace we have. Lord, I pray that the Christians in this room would fellowship together. There would be deep fellowship here that we might encourage each other, that we would walk with each other. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.